hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, the shit no one tells you about writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's episode is an extra special one because we're launching our amazing new segment, Books with Hooks, which I'm really excited about. In it, super agents Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira from PS Literary Agency will be reading the query letters and opening pages you submit for their feedback. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to test run your submissions so that when you get them in front of your dream agents, you'll make the best possible first impression by grabbing their attention. If you'd like to participate, email your query letter and the first five pages of your novel in one document to theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com. Please redact any information you don't want us to share on the podcast, like your name, or the title of your work. After the Books with Hooks segment, we'll have today's guest, Rachel Spence, who's a freelance editor and who will be telling us everything we need to know about getting editorial help. So get ready, it's going to be a jam-packed episode. Let's begin with the first submission, which is from Submitter A, Novel A. Dear Miss Murray, I'm an avid listener of your podcast and actually shrieked out loud when you made the announcement on the most recent episode regarding the first five-page critique. 
I follow Carly Waters on Instagram and would love to receive her feedback in addition to her colleague Cece Lira on my literary fiction novel. Maggie has been wrapped in the warm blanket of love provided by her boyfriend Andrew. It's been easy for her to forget that Springtide, her quaint village in the afterlife, is meant to be a temporary place to rest and reset. That is, until a catastrophe on the other side upsets the balance, and Andrew is born while she is left behind. To avoid being swallowed by her grief, she decides to push the boundaries of her familiar world while periodically finding herself within the expanse of Andrew's new living one. Rather than offering her comfort and support, however, Maggie's friendships are slowly unraveling. The closer she gets to reuniting with Andrew, the less she can trust the truth of her relationships with those most important to her. And through it all, why is the quiet gardener from downstairs so eager to discuss it all? Novel A is a 75,000 word adult novel that questions how deep the connections of love run, as well as the moral implications of that love. If the books Here, Now and Then by Mike Chen and the Netflix show Dark caught your fancy, then this book is for you. I'm so excited to hear the next episode. Sincerely yours, Submitter A. All right, I am looking at the query letter for novel A, and it's telling me that it is a 75,000 word adult novel. So all in all, I really actually thought this query letter was really well done. I thought that it really got to the point really quickly about it's the afterlife and the comps were really great um, here and now and then by Michael Chen which is also a PS literary author so kudos to you for for giving a PS literary shout out um, which was a great reference point for all of us so yeah I thought I thought it was a really great query letter that explained everything really well and so for me that that set me up pretty well to go into the novel I was excited about it um, it also kind of reminded me not like right on the nose but I worked on a novel called maybe in another life by Taylor Jenkins Reid so I'm interested in that kind of sliding doors thing so worked really well for me. So, you know, I, I was set up with, you know, great expectations and, and again, really excited to roll, roll into this one. So, so as I started reading the sample, I kind of had to put the brakes on things because I couldn't, right from the first paragraph, I felt like we were making a move from a commercially written query letter with more commercial-ish uh, comps to me. And again, maybe that was just my entry point and that's what I was expecting. But then we kind of rolled into a very literary sample and, you know, I made some notes in the margins here, just like, you know, I, I just didn't quite understand it, didn't really, you know, couldn't really get into it really easily. And for me, because my taste, I would say, is on the more commercial that market side, I probably would say this would be too literary for me in terms of my taste. So I also felt like the novel didn't really start until about page, uh, in my notes, about page six. There, there's a line that says, Maggie, um, I know you're with that boy. I know that boy isn't here anymore. Maybe talking about it would help. I'm a good listener, you know. I sighed, not feeling my chest expand, not feeling my breath in my lungs. I felt blank, empty there's nothing anybody can do that would help so for me that was that was the beginning of the novel so I I thought the beginning was just kind of um, a bit of a literary setup and again could be my taste um, but that that was my take on it I just thought that maybe it didn't start in the right place yeah I also enjoyed the query letter I especially liked that the author showed a little bit of her personality because she mentioned she shrieked out loud when you Bianca made the announcement that Carly would be here to offer critique so I thought that that was really nice I always like it when authors include a little bit of their personality it hit all the marks like we know what the word count is. We know what the novel is about. So that's great. Would have liked to hear a little bit more about the author. Like maybe, I don't know, 
something about her writing credentials. Even if you don't think you have one, sometimes you do, like listening to this podcast, although she did mention that. But in terms of the writing, I thought that it didn't start in the right place. Agree with with Carly's take. And I would add that to me, the place where it started was a little confusing. So she's looking at her reflection. And then there are a few references that I you know, had to read twice to understand. So you do want to start your novel, not only in in really interesting place with tension, tension is always super important. But I always think that, you know, a good way to start a novel is with a short, shorter sentence, either that or a sentence that that is promising something that is going to come. This is just two tricks. There's obviously lots of ways to start a novel, but this is something that I feel like if she were to edit this first paragraph, and I feel like she could, that might make it a little tighter and then better. There's also a, a point in on page two, where someone walks into the store, his name is Oliver, and he says, Maggie, may I? And then, you know, he she interrupts him by going, Oliver, I actually avoid this at the start of the novel, I'd say, only because when you show two characters interrupting each other, this works really well to show what is being unsaid. But we only know what's being unsaid, meaning what's, you know, packed inside a sentence, what the person can't quite get themselves to say because they're stumbling once we get to know the characters a little bit more. And if that's not the intention, if the intention is really just to show that they were talking over each other, then it's not necessary, right? Right in the beginning, keep the pace going. I feel like this will be really eerie and atmospheric. And I love that. I love that in novel. I would just add a little bit of tension. And I will say to that point that a lot of really successful authors don't start their first or even second or third drafts with tension. They add that. They layer that afterwards. So never feel discouraged when someone says, well, I don't see enough tension here. You can just add that later if that critique makes sense to you. A lot of authors do that and that's okay. Do you have an example of the kind of tension you would recommend that she adds something like specific that she can think about or not necessarily? So I do think that the reference of the boy not being here anymore that Carly mentioned is the, actually a great, great example. But since this is the afterlife and we know this because of the query letter, Perhaps also something referencing something mystical or magical or or spiritual, as long as it's something that's foreshadowing something big that's about to come. And I don't, people oftentimes when I say this, people think big, like an explosion. No, no, this is literary fiction. That's okay. But something tense. So the boy that isn't there anymore and that that's a problem is, is a good example of that. Okay. Uh, Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add to that or no? One thing that's really interesting and most intriguing about this literary fiction is that it is about the afterlife and it is a bit of a hook, which is great for literary fiction. It's great to have a hook. And so obviously us reading this um, right after the query, we have a bit of an entry point. Somebody picking up this future book or is probably going to read the back cover copy. So nobody is really going to come to this cold, but editors will review this as it, as a cold submission in the sense that they will be coming to it for the first time. And with an editor eagle eye, that's something that they will pick up. So you just need to remember that we do need to make sure that we do have an access point for people to get right into it. And so, you know, obviously there are going to be things that people come to this with in terms of their expectations, like something I think about when, when I read this pitch was um, The Good Life, that TV show. Um, obviously, it's completely commercial and comedic and completely different tone. But again, like these are these are little reference points that we come to it with. So, you know, again, we want to think a little bit about what people are coming to it with and their expectations. So I would talk a little bit about, yeah, what the afterlife looks like maybe or how it's perceived. Instead of going right into the character development stuff here, I would probably start with a little bit about that. And 
And just on that, do you think that the first person best serves this kind of story that requires a lot of world building? Because, you know, the problem with first person narratives is that this is normal for this character. Where they live is entirely normal for them. So they're not as likely to observe things that the reader definitely desperately needs to be observed in order for the reader to make sense of the situation. Whereas if you write something in the third person, you can give a lot more context to the world because it's more natural for the narrator to be commenting on things like that. Or do you not necessarily think that's a problem in this kind of story? I would say now that you've brought that to my attention, um, that seems very, uh, very astute. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, again, because my taste is more kind of commercial to upmarket and I don't tend to go to capital L literary fiction unless it has a big hook um, but that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to this is because I do think it has a hook and I, I think that is what makes literary fiction you know accessible and has that potential to cross into the mainstream so because you know you're kind of giving us everything that we want in terms of what publishing professionals look for in literary fiction and looking for breaking out literary fiction I, I do agree I, I think that world building in this case would be extremely important and Bianca said third person and I do think that would probably draw us in much better. I, I definitely agree with the with the assessment. Um, very astute. I'm now going to use that wisdom. I do feel that oftentimes with point of view, it's nice to play around with it. So, you know, if the author hasn't yet, I feel like trying a different point of view might work really well even if only as an exercise. So much of figuring out your own novel is listening to what the pages are going to tell you, but they can't tell you things if you're not trying new new ways to do it. Absolutely. And my observation just comes from personal experience. I prefer writing in the first person. That's my natural setting. In my last novel, there was three narrators and one of them I had to do in the third person purely because she was living in an informal settlement in the squatter camp in South Africa and this is such a different world to what any of my North American readers were used to that even though it wasn't fantasy or sci-fi I had to do a certain degree of world building for the reader to get on the page with what was happening and it never felt authentic to me trying to do the world building in the first person because it just felt like the this character was giving the reader exposition for exposition's sake, as opposed to it being organic. Whereas when you write something in the third person, as the narrator, you have so much more leeway in which to play around with these things. So that's something for you to consider submitter A. Now let's look at submitter B, novel B. Dear Carly, Cecilia and Bianca, novel B, which is an 80,000 word Smart Book Club Fiction Novel is a dysfunctional family drama centered on Elian, a 26-year-old startup supervisor whose life gets upended when she receives a letter from her father, written before his death from pancreatic cancer seven years prior. He urges her to find and reconcile with her mother, whose sudden disappearance when Elian was a toddler has never been explained to her. Elian's life further unravels when she gets fired, runs out of money, and moves in with Grandma, whose health is declining. Elian must overcome her family's stubborn silence to piece together the truth about her mother's disappearance or risk ending up aimless and alone. In a story that mines adultery, arson, and exile, and a quest that spans from California to Philadelphia to Italy, Novel B pairs an abandoned female protagonist similar to that of The Queen's Gambit with the style and family secrets of The Most Fun We Ever Had. 
I was a cum laude English major at Yale and received my MBA from UCLA. I'm currently plotting my second novel from my temporary home of Florence, Italy. My short fiction has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and has been published in Defenestration, Flash Fiction Magazine, Reflex and Writer's Advice. Thank you for your consideration and I look forward to hearing from you soon. So novel B, the query letter hits all the right marks. I know that it's 80,000 words. I know that it's book club fiction. I know that it's centered around dysfunctional family drama. I personally love that so much. In terms of, of the story, I like that the author is telling me what happens. I wonder if perhaps she could share a little bit less only because she does get into a bit of detail. Like, obviously I haven't read the whole novel, so maybe this isn't too much detail, but I would recommend, you know, on first glance, tightening up a little bit and just removing so many details. She, there's a part where she writes, Elian's life further unravels when she gets fired, runs out of money and moves in with grandma whose health is declining. I don't think we need that sentence. We could start with the following sentence that says, Elian must overcome her family's stubborn silence to piece together the truth about her mother's disappearance or even the following one. I'm not sure, but you, you could condense that sentence a little bit more. I like the comps. I like that the protagonist is similar to the Queen's Gambit. I love the most fun we ever had. It's a novel. I love that. I like that she included her writing credentials. So overall, I thought this was a really well-written letter. She actually references a second novel that she's plotting. So that shows a career author. And I, I like seeing that. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed this query letter. Okay. So the query letter for novel B, I also love dysfunctional family dramas. Um, that's just like coffee in my cup. Absolutely love it. Need it every day. So that part was great. So I felt like we're moving into the second paragraph. I felt like we were kind of pitching two different books. So we had the little bit about life unraveling, uh, the little bit of the family drama, stubborn silence, mother's disappearance. And then we get into this bit about um, in a story that mines adultery, arson, exile, quest that spans from California to Philadelphia to Italy. Like to me, like we're packing like almost two different novels into this one little paragraph. And so I felt like the note that I made on this was that I felt like sometimes authors try to pitch a query letter in the sense that they're trying to make us know what is common about their story in terms of like, here's, you know, they do the whole like her life was normal until it was chaotic or it was this and her marriage was normal until this happened. And so instead of focusing on what is common about the story, focusing on what is unique about it to me is more important. So not doing the, you know, you're going to like it because you have a clean entry point into it. No, you're going to like it because it's completely dramatic and unique. And that's why I thought the adultery, arson, exile, like you don't, again, you don't have to give away the end if there's some sort of like mystery that's going to, that's going to happen. But I want to know more about the adultery, arson and exile element of it as opposed to the, you know, again, normal everyday life of life unraveling grandma, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I would just kind of like almost flip that. Um, so I would talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about that kind of drama before we talk about why it's, why her life is um, it's more straightforward to, to me that I think that would just be more interesting and compelling focusing on what is unique instead of what is more common about the story. And the other thing, yes, love the comp. So Queen's Gambit, most of we ever had great entry points, also very different. So when comps are really, really kind of far away in terms of whether it's historical moments or 
genres or anything like these these comps are pretty far apart you know queen's gamut was written in the 80s most fun we ever had was written a couple years ago you know we have historical context we have so much going on and so again i think what pulls these two comps together is the family dysfunction you know i assume which is great but yeah so i would say i'm I'm a little worried the queen's gamut is being used as a like here's a really topical thing that everybody likes right now as opposed to a comp that really like digs in and tells us more about the book because i didn't really get the sense that this is a historical novel so, you know, again, Queen's Gambit, love that show, binged it in, you know, six hours or however long it was. Um, but yeah, I would just put a little bit of question mark in my mind about whether we would use that comp title in the eventual pitch letter to editors. Something that I found interesting is that things that we consider historical fiction, the Historical Fiction Society does not consider historical fiction. So apparently a story has to take place 50 years in the past for the Historical Fiction Society to consider something historical fiction. That's really interesting. I always ask editors about that too um you know what qualifies as historical fiction because i think anything they kind of consider anything historical that's about 20 years in the past which is a bit strange to me (laughs) but uh, but yeah so that's interesting that the historical novel society feels differently listen considering covid i consider last year historical fiction man (laughs) (laughs) okay what were you gonna say about the bio carly oh i was just gonna dip into the bio but ultimately i my note was just great loved it you know covered all covered all the bases here um in terms of education second novel all of that sort of stuff um was really great and and uh Love, love the bio. Very well-written query, for sure. Okay, let's go into the pages. So the novel starts off um, with the protagonist finding a letter. And I love novels that start start off like this because I feel like it's a great way to get your reader to ask questions. So much of starting a novel is about getting the reader to ask the right questions. Like, oh my gosh, what's this letter going to be about? Who sent it? What's going to happen? And after, after she reads it. So I was asking all the right questions and that was great. I also enjoyed that the author set me in scene right away. So I could smell what was going on. She mentions the smelling the peppery tang of cooked garlic and ginger. I could, I could see what the character was doing. There was a sharp visual about the lake. I like that. So that was, that was great. Like immersing in scene. You'd be surprised how many times I don't get that right off the bat. And I do appreciate it. I felt that. So here's what happens. The protagonist finds this letter. We get to read the letter and and that's that's basically it, right? Um, we get a little bit of her reaction, or actually we don't, and that's what I'll get into after she reads the letter. Two comments on that. One is, I felt like the letter could use with a little bit of tweaking so that the voice sounds more like her dad. This letter is from the protagonist's father. I felt like it didn't quite sound like someone's dad writing that letter. It felt like someone who was younger. I don't know. I do think that that could be tweaked a little bit um, just to make it sound distinct from the, the protagonist's voice. Another thing is that, well, here's the thing. The protagonist's father died. Um, I think it was seven years ago. I'm not sure. And she found a letter written by her dad before he died. Like, that's a huge thing. We need to see her emotional reaction after she reads that letter. I'm inside her head. This is this is third person close. So I was super excited to go on that journey. Um, this is personal for me. Like, I lost my dad five years ago, right? So if I found a letter that he had written before he died to me, like, and again, I'm totally projecting my own life here, but I would be really, really interested in in seeing her emotional reaction. And we don't get that. 
after she reads the letter, she has her best friend with her. And I, I like the best friend character a lot, by the way. That was really well done. I'll, I'll read the line. She looked up and saw Crosby at the doorway, hands clasped behind her back like a Degas dancer, a tear like a dewdrop trailing down her cheek. Crosby cried empathy tears at movies, at books, at three-legged dogs, even at seeing someone give up their seat for an older person on the subway. Notice how we're talking about Crosby, the best friend. I want to be inside Elian's. Is it Elian and Lion? I don't know. I want to be inside the protagonist's head. I want to feel, all I get from her emotional state is finally feeling calmer. She released the hug. I want more. Like, and this, by the way, is a good thing. Like me wanting more is a sign that your story is interesting. So please, this is third person close. This is the protagonist. You're starting off the novel. Just, I want to know more what, about her head. I found novel B to be similarly intriguing. I I really enjoyed, you know, the whole like was it her mom on the on the, the postcard in the mailbox little entry point. I thought that was great. And I, I also really liked the letter that Cece was talking about, but I want to unpack that a little bit because I, I felt really torn about the letter. I like that it is like the hook that comes out really early, but I am a little bit concerned because we don't know these characters very well. And whenever this kind of reminds me of like the, the, the prologue problem when the reader is asked to do a lot of the kind of emotional heavy lifting on their own and they just don't have an entry point into ending about the characters or why this matters or their emotional state at this time. And so I, I feel like the letter was trying to be used as like, you know, the the five alarm fire to start the novel when I actually don't think that's the five alarm fire. I think that we need something else to be the kind of, um, you know, inciting incident to get to know the characters. Like what it could even be like Elian coming home to some sort of drama that her roommate was having, you know, like enter with drama, but I don't think the letter is the drama because I don't think we know the characters well enough. And so again, could be any any sort of drama she's out for her run and she like rolls her ankle and a neighbor has to help her home just like anything <laughs> other than the letter to start with but quickly follow with the letter so it's like okay entry point into the character then follow with the letter so that we kind of have like a double whammy back to back in terms of emotional drama I just don't think the letter can carry the inciting incident at this time but love it as a trope you know I think I think it's great it's just you're just asking the reader to do a lot more heavy lifting than they're able to at this point which results in people putting it down and our third query letter dear Cecilia I first became familiar with you and your work while listening to Bianca Murray's podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. When I heard you were looking for compelling memoirs and have a soft spot for feminist issues and women's stories, I immediately jotted your name down. Today, I would like to submit my book to all the boys I never loved for your consideration. To all the boys I never loved, complete at 100,000 words, is a comedic memoir written from the perspective of a 30-something straight cisgender woman who has been dating since her teenage years, but has never been in love. This book is a brutally honest, shockingly vulgar, and charmingly witty recount of the life of a single woman who sees her ever-expanding breakup roster as a collection of successful learning experiences rather than failures. It will appeal to readers who appreciate the cross humor of Mandy Statmiller's Unwifeable, the raw candor of Michelle Parise's Alone, A Love Story, and the refreshing tenacity of Glynis McNichol's No One tells you this. 
To all the boys I never loved takes the reader on a humorous and heart-wrenching journey of self-discovery and self-love amidst the complexities of relationships, but more importantly, breakups. From my days as a teenage virgin, when a trip to the doctor for acne remedying birth control led to the confusing discovery of my immaculate conception, to my tumultuous 20s when I happily made myself a mere receptacle for unsolicited dick pics, non-consensual sexual encounters, and incurable STIs. And now in my early 30s, when I finally learned what I really wanted out of a relationship from the most unlikely of sources, my married boyfriend. I deep dive into my experiences with every issue surrounding love, except love itself, and share how I've grown to embrace my chronically single status. I have been a storyteller all my life through acting, singing, radio broadcasting, and my career in PR and communications, transient in more than just my romantic entanglements. I have lived in Nova Scotia, Berlin, and Toronto, where I currently reside with my canine life partner, Sully. You can find me on social media through my personal profile and recently created platforms I've launched to build a following for my content. My hope is to be a published comedic author telling stories that women can relate to, laugh at and learn from. But in the meantime, I'll settle for airing my dirty laundry on social media in exchange for digital validation. Please contact me if you would like to see the complete manuscript. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Kendra. So I'm looking at the query letter for the project called To All the Boys I've Never Loved. So right away for me, I felt like the title was too similar to All the Boys I've Loved Before, which was the YA novel. So it was a little bit hard for me to kind of flip gears uh, once I found out this was a comedic memoir written from the perspective of a 30-something-year-old woman. Um, And also the word boys in the title didn't really work for me because it's an adult project. And then I kind of felt like a little bit icky about that. So if if we're replacing this in the adult category, I do think we need a more adult title. So that was kind of my first take on that. I also felt like there was a lot of... I was feeling a little bit disjointed about the fact that it's a memoir. And so sometimes in query letters, when authors are pitching memoir, they feel like they need a lot of flowery language to be talking about themselves when I feel like the writing has to do it for it. And so um, so there was just some a couple examples of some adverbs that I just thought were a little bit heavy, brutally honest, shockingly vulgar, charmingly witty. In other paragraphs, there's a lot of adverbs like that as well. And so I would actually, I think something stronger when you just say this book is, a, is an honest, vulgar, witty book, right? And so I just feel like folks focusing on not you don't have to woo me as an agent you know you just have to tell me like what the goods are so um so I would have just liked to hit that a little bit harder and again that would just bring down the word count of this query because I do think the query is a little bit long so yeah that was kind of my first take on the first two points the next was the comp we kind of move into that I love Glynis McNichols no one tells you this such an amazing 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 book so that was an excellent comp and and a a very good comp so I thought that was very well done and the next uh, section kind of takes us into what the actual plot of the book was. And so I felt like we're starting off with some, again, a little bit of flowery language in the sense that heart-wrenching journey, self-discovery, self-love, nothing wrong with those points or those words, but as an agent and a reader, I'm going to figure that out myself about your book. So let's try to get to like the gritty goods here. Um, So then the next part that's great is teenage virgin, immaculate conception, tumultuous twenties, you know, we're getting into the goods there. So I would just, you know, take out some of that, that flowery language.
language again, it will just cut down on word count. And then, so now our third paragraph here, we're getting into um, the author bio. And so I really like that um, the author in some pages, we have like a, an Instagram, a TikTok, and then I think a Twitter link, which is great, but I just want to make sure that we kind of talk about the difference between a platform driven book and kind of a, like a book that is just pitched on, you know, the quality of the goods itself. And so by including all that information about the following that you're kind of launching, I think that is great. But I do think this is the case where it can't kind of be considered a platform book because, you know, we need followers somewhere around the kind of 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, kind of up to 100,000 to call this like a platform driven book. So I just want to make sure that the author really focuses on pitching this as purely based on how interesting it is and the quality of the actual work itself, as opposed to calling it a, a platform driven book. I like that she started off by referencing the podcast only because it shows that she's done her research. That's always good. I do feel like the first paragraph could be one sentence long. I always recommend um, authors to lean into their powers of brevity and that less is more in a query letter. This is quite long. I agree with Carly's point about the title and also really enjoyed the comps. So in the third paragraph, there's a sentence where she says, from my days as a teenage virgin, when a trip to the doctor for acne remedying birth control led to the confusing discovery of my immaculate conception. So immediately I was like, what? what? So that really piqued my interest. She mentions, you know, a few other things that are just as as shocking. I don't know if that would be the right word, but that you know definitely kept me wanting more. So I would just condense this a lot, make it a lot shorter, stick to these three or four things that are, I guess, really different about your life, intriguing. And yeah, just make this a lot shorter, I think. Not because it's not good, it is, but rather because less is more. We don't need all this. I thought it was really sweet that she referenced her dog only because I'm such a dog lover and I always like knowing that people like dogs too. But again, we don't need all this information, right? Like I would, I would keep it shorter to make this stand out even more. Like this would be an even stronger letter if it were shorter. Okay, so now onto the sample chapters. Carly, would you like to begin with those? So the author starts off with an introduction to enter into the book. So I would say that I really enjoyed the writing. I don't have a, a single critique about the writing itself. But again, I always kind of come back to the idea of whether this is where the book starts. And especially with a memoir, which draws that, uh, straddles the line between it is nonfiction, but it kind of has to read like a novel. And so I don't think that an introduction is necessary. I would actually prefer that we kind of just get right into it. And so I don't really think we need a recap necessarily or a grounding moment necessarily, because I think we're like, we're going to spend the whole book with you. So I think I would rather start off with actual kind of like plotty memoir as opposed to an introduction memoir. So I'm a huge fan of memoirs. I 100% agree with Carly. We do not need an introduction. Please, please, please just take me to the actual writing. I am so eager to go on that journey with you and a memoir is supposed to read like a novel. This is very, very important. It's 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 the secret to writing a memoir. If you treat it like fiction, not in the sense that you're making it up, but in the sense that you're following all the rules of fiction, of keeping the reader engaged, of offering plot and setting and character. And if you start with an introduction, it doesn't feel like fiction. It feels like nonfiction. And people pick up memoirs because they like the feeling of a novel, but with the added intrigue that it's real life. So strongly, strongly recommend this author to just jump right in. Um, her story's clearly interesting. So just, just do that. I also enjoyed the writing. I felt that, and again, because this is an introduction, this is just a general memoir tip for anyone. Remember that memoirs are all about scene, secrets, and shame. So you always have to keep us in scene, even if that's stream of consciousness, that's fine. But I need to know where I am in your story. There has to be some type of secret, some type of reveal. It doesn't have to be the most bombastic secret of life, but there has to be something that you're keeping or that someone is keeping or a promise of 
of something. And, and, and shame really is an umbrella term that I'm using for any unsavory emotion. You can't be a perfect person feeling perfect things. And it's not that this is what's going on right here, but it does seem like there's no conflict. The author is very clear about saying, so I've dated all these guys and I've never fallen in love. And it's okay because I'm content in my life. And I had great parents um, who loved each other a lot and were a happily married couple. And all the couples around me were also wonderful. And I'm okay. So because she's telling me that she's okay, I'm thinking to myself, well, then what's the point? I am very happy that you're okay. But I want to, I want there to be drama. I want there to be conflict and tension. So we need conflict and tension here. And I'll just say it, right? Like, I don't buy it. I don't buy that you're okay. No one's okay, first of all. Second of all, if you want to tell the story, there's something there. So I would unpack it and I would remember that right now you are relating a story to us as opposed to revealing a story to us. Relating a story is when you say, I went to the grocery store. Revealing a story is I went to the grocery store and I shoplifted. Like what? Why did you shoplift? You know, like, why would you do that? What's going on in your life that you have felt like you had to do that? Or is it a compulsion? What is it? Like there has to be an element there of intrigue. And in memoir, this is so important. And I'm like the biggest fan of memoir. So I, I feel like what a huge challenge is that authors, they often, their memoirs, their first drafts, especially tend to read like journaling as opposed to storytelling. So these are my many thoughts. I love memoirs, as you can see. And just in terms of what you said, so perhaps the writer now is fine with everything, but this needs to be kind of a character arc. Even if it's memoir, you need to show that there's been this baptism of fire, all these things that happened that at the time were not okay, but now you Zen and this is how you got to the part where you were Zen. Because in the query letter, we have things like it's raw, it's honest, it's vulgar, there are shocking moments, etc. So I think to start with one of those is a good way to really draw the reader in and to show them this journey of discovery that the author went through in writing this novel and in going through all of these experiences. Because for me, that's another thing about a memoir. It's that this is where I started and this is where I ended. And this is how I changed in the process of going through all of these things. Fully agree. Um, 100% agree. And don't tell us that you're okay right off the bat, right? Like, I think it's the third paragraph or maybe despite my earlier question, the question is that, you know, why has she never fallen in love? And she was crying when she asked that question. Despite my earlier question, written in the depths of a recent heartbreak, courtesy of one of my non-relationship breakups, I live pretty contently most of the time. Again, you're right, Bianca. Like if, if that's the case now, great. Cause it means that you went through a journey and you're okay now. That's actually wonderful, but don't tell me that. Take me on the journey, show your struggles and show the character arc that you're going to undergo. And then at the end, I'll find out that you're okay. You never want, can you imagine any story, any fairy tale, any major story being like, in the end, it's all okay guys. But then, then let's, let's go follow the hero's journey. No, that's, you don't want that. You want the tension to be on the page. And right. I get why she did it. She was trying to reassure us. I, I appreciate that. I just yeah. want to go back to the, the Bulgarian element because sometimes I feel like vulgarity can be used as something to hide behind and so I feel like when you say you're going to be vulgar it's again I, I love it let's be honest about women's lives like let's get right into it you know no shame like I'm all here for it but I think in some ways hiding behind the vulgarity of the language it's kind of like like sex addiction like what are you hiding behind and what are you like what where are the secrets that are going on behind yourself and by putting by being sex forward great like love sex positivity all good but like what what are we trying to unpack emotionally and that's why I felt like the the introduction kept us at arm's length in a way where I didn't want to be at arm's length right like I want to be with you as as Cece said in the scene 
And so I feel like the job of this type of memoir is actually to make us more uncomfortable than comfortable. And as Cece said, she's trying to make us comfortable and I don't want to be comfortable, right? Like I picked up this book to be uncomfortable, to be challenged, to talk about things that might be taboo. And if you're going to write it in a vulgar way, again, fine with me, let's back it up with some like deep emotionality about why we got to this, this state. And so, yeah, I think being in the scene, because again, like there's so many memoirs we could reference here, but you know, there's things like Wild, right? Where she's getting into the, the sex addiction and, and using that as a, as a crutch. And also I'm, I'm currently reading or listening to, I should say, um, Jessica Simpson's open book, which is an amazing, amazing memoir where she just mines her whole childhood, all of the darkness, you know, which led her to the light kind of thing. Right. And so we need that kind of like that down up, um, you know, valley to peak thing that Bianca was talking about. So, so yeah, I feel like there's a lot here. And again, we're trying to critique something based off six pages, right? So we're just, we're not able to kind of, you know, delve deep in a way that I think we all want to. And the fact that we want to talk so much about this project also makes me feel like there's so much good here and so much that could be, could be really successful. So yeah, I think, I think we all want this to succeed. Um, So it's just about, you know, figuring out what the story is and and getting us in scene. Yeah. And show us the messy bits up front, you know, show us like the rock bottom, the messy, ugly stuff up front so that we read to find out that you did turn out fine on the other side. I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for sharing your work with us. I know that it is an extremely vulnerable thing to do. Um, As agents, we don't take this lightly. Our careers are built on the back of writers being vulnerable with us. um, And we appreciate that so much. We just want all of you to, you know, get better through listening through our critiques of other people's work. Um, And I'm so glad to be a part of this. Thank you, Bianca. Thank you to all the writers who shared their work. It's an incredibly brave thing to do. My admiration is with you. I so appreciate it. It's an honor to get to read your work. It's always an honor. And I wish we could do this with every single critique we get. So thank you for this, Bianca. Thank you for this opportunity. And Cece and Carly, I know how incredibly busy you both are. And for you to take time out to read these submissions and chat with me, I hugely appreciate it. And I know very much that our listeners will as well. So thank you very much for that. Carly Waters will be running a 90 minute webinar on identifying and cultivating your author brand on the 11th of March at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. To register for that, head over to Carly's Instagram page where you'll find the link in her bio. Also, don't forget that I've got various creative writing courses coming up. Head to my author page at biancamaray.com to get more information on dates, fees, and registration details. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Today's guest has a BA and MA in English from the University of Toronto and a publishing certificate from Ryerson University. She has been an in-house editor for over three years, including most recently working as an acquisitions editor at Dundon Press in Toronto. In this role, she acquired literary fiction, genre fiction, memoir, biography, and young adult fiction. She has also been working as a freelance editor for over seven years. In her spare time, she enjoys reading, discussing grammar, and spending time with her pets. I love her already. It's my pleasure to welcome Rachel Spence. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's lovely to have you on the show. Could you begin by letting us know what kind of services you offer to writers and what your qualifications are? So I am a professional editor, which basically means that I have a 
publishing certificate from an actual, in my case, from Ryerson University, but there's also college courses that offer that. I'm also a member of Editors Canada, which is the only Canadian organization for editors. Uh, and that's kind of the kind of nothing bolts of it. Beyond that, a lot of that is, you know, it's experience. Uh, you know, I have in-house experience, I have freelancing experience, and now I'm primarily freelancing, which uh, means that I'm working directly with you know writers and in different situations that you have with companies, things like that to to edit for them. Uh, so for myself, I do anything from developmental editing, right, which is the big picture editing. I also do copy editing, which is a little more kind of nuts and bolts looking at kind of grammar and and kind of smaller structural stuff. And then I also do proofreading, which is generally something I do more with publishing companies for that. I also, because I have an acquisitions editing background, I also offer consultation services. And it's really, it's kind of anywhere kind of in around uh, that realm. Anything I can do to help writers, basically any answer questions they have, work with them on their project. And yeah, and I always uh, enjoy having people reach out with questions. Wonderful. So the question here is for a lot of beginner writers is why do they need to hire an editor early on in the process? If their book is going to be sold to mm-hmm. a publisher and they're going to work with an editor, why do they need to incur the cost of an editor early on in the process? So could you take us through that? It's an excellent question. And it's actually, it is one I encounter pretty regularly, whether indirectly or not. But really what it comes down to is competition right? There are far more projects out there than there are publishing houses that can publish books. So because of that, right, you you need to have an edge. You need to, whether it's, you know, quality writing, uh, a very good, well-developed idea, any, anything in and around that, that realm. And Oftentimes, it doesn't really it doesn't really matter how talented a writer you are. An editor can help you get there because you have some writers who are like their their prose is absolutely beautiful, but the book just doesn't hold together, and they just can't figure out how to fix it. So by going to to an editor, you can actually get someone who knows what they're doing and who works on books regularly to be like, look, here's your weaknesses. This is why why it's not working. You know, like anything in and around there, and an editor will do that. And oftentimes, I, I've also encountered people who are you know who are maybe or just don't haven't done research to kind of understand how much an editor might cost and things like that. And that's another thing I always recommend too is, you know, do your research. Definitely ask questions when you reach out to editors to get a sense of what projects they work on, how much it should cost, so that that way everybody's comfortable as well. Also, reach out to more than one editor, right? You, you want to make sure you're, you're going to be working with someone and investing this, this time and money with someone who you know is going to not only you know help you deliver a good quality product, but it's actually someone that you'll enjoy working with and you might want to work with again. Because editors are, are find a good editor, it usually means it's a longer relationship than just someone looking at a, at a few things for you. And, you know, going back to, you know, the question itself, by doing that and by having a much stronger product, if you're looking for an agent, if you're submitting directly to publishing houses, they're going to notice, right? They're going to be like, oh, that's in really good shape. So, because if something is in really good shape and it's also good, they're going to be far more willing to acquire it because it means it's going to cost them less money, which means their bottom line is going to be better because all publishing houses always have to play that line, right? Especially the indies, none of them have a lot of money, right? So anything that that can help so that it kind of checks both boxes, it's great for them. And, you know, something I didn't realize when I was an emerging writer 
writer is that you know, I was of the opinion you finished this book, you finished the first draft of it, and you're so impressed with yourself that you finished a book. And I mean, it is a huge accomplishment to finish a book because of all the people who start writing books, there's a small percentage who actually finish an entire book. But still, that's the point at which writers tend to immediately send it off trying to query agents. And of course, firstly, agents have got so many submissions coming in on a weekly basis. Their slush piles are enormous. And most agents that I speak to say that they only give a manuscript kind of five to 10 pages before they decide if they're even going to continue with it. So if those five to 10 pages aren't really, really polished, they immediately going to close the file and move on to the next project. And that's assuming they even make it to the manuscript because the cover letter, the editorial letter, whatever you want to call it, right? Which you're, it's basically, you know, you're, you're, you're telling a bit about yourself, you're giving information about the book. If it is way over the top confidence wise, or you can tell this person is like incapable of say, I don't know, summarizing their project, or it could be littered with spelling errors or you know, a whole multitude of, of problems. And if, you know, if you look at that and you're like, oh God, this looks awful, then you might not even make it to the manuscript. I remember I used to manage the slush pile when I was at Dundurn and there were times where like depending on what it was, I'd be like, okay, I'm not even going to look at that. Or if I was feeling generous, maybe I wouldn't. I'd look at the first paragraph. This is the thing too, is you may say like on five to 10 pages, if something looks maybe promising, I might give it to 20, but I usually know on that first page whether or not something has potential. The first line of that book, if it doesn't hook me or if it's strange or if it has the word boobs in it, yes, this really <laughs> happened. Um, I'm, I'm probably not going to read more or I'm going to show it to my colleague but that's a whole separate thing okay so take us through the process let's say that somebody wants to work with an editor uh, and they reach out to you we'll discuss costs associated shortly but for now I'm just looking at the process how does that work? How do you and the writer agree upon the kind of editing that gets done? Let's focus specifically on, say, developmental editing, because I feel like that is where independent editors or consultants add the most value. Yes, I would I would agree with that. Well, you know, so of course, first step, of course, is, is to you know, for an author to to reach out to to editors. And usually as part of it, like for, for myself anyway, what I always ask for before I give an estimate is I always like to see the full manuscript. The full manuscript is actually very important. And that and that's for many reasons, in part so I can for sure like I can verify the word length, I can verify the genre, I can verify a whole bunch of things, including how much work it needs and what shape it's in. Like especially say if you have like urban fantasy novel, but it's a you know, it's a type so you don't necessarily start in the world, you kind of discover the world as you go. But then if I only have the first 30 pages, then and then you haven't even really gotten to the fantasy part, then I'm like, I have no idea what's going on in your book. So, you know, that's always, you know, something that, that does come up at times too. So it's a full manuscript. I like to always have learn a bit about the author because you have some authors who say, you know, have published before or are completely new. What are their backgrounds? You know, where are they coming from? It's not necessarily just like, a, you know, are you educated? It's it's also just to get a sense of where they're coming from. Do they participate kind of in, in workshops? Maybe what kind of industry do they work in? Like just, just to get a sense of 
kind of where their headspace is as well. I also like to talk a bit about budget, which is always, you know, a bit uncomfortable for people anytime, you know, we have to talk about money. But coming in with a clear budget can be really helpful because then if I know if there's an author who's like, okay, I only have this amount of money, but I, I'm interested in, in this level of editing, then I can counter and be like, okay, well, with this amount, I can do this. So how about this? This is a bit of a compromise. So it's, it's part of it. It's really sharing as much information kind of on both sides to get to that middle ground. But the big thing that authors should always know is that even with estimates, what and this goes for with any editors, is that all estimates, generally speaking, are negotiable. They're also usually given as a range. Every editor has their own way of doing it. Um, I tend to give ranges. But so you just, you know, it's again, it's just, it's, it's a conversation. So if, if an editor kind of comes in, is like, okay, well, I'm looking at this range for your project. You know, they'll probably explain a bit, maybe a bit why they're giving that number. Not like saying huge detail on the, on the mathematical side, but like they're going to be like, okay, well, your project definitely needs this amount of work. I've noticed these things already. It could be that maybe, you know, structurally they, there's obvious problems, things like that, because an editor will always look through the material, even briefly, just spend like five, 10 minutes just getting a sense of the project. They'll also want to get a sense of whether it's the right project for them, because every editor works on different projects uh, and has different skill sets, which is also why going on even like the Editors Canada website, which has its own online database of editors. And you can actually go on there and you can read profiles of different editors as well as um, you can get their contact information that way as, as well. And by going through Editors Canada, higher chance that you're going to be connecting with a quality editor as well, because they are a, part, a member of the association rather than just trying to do kind of like a Google search and just kind of hope for the best that way um, it's generally the it's definitely a method I recommend so once they've decided that you're the person that they want to work with and you've agreed to a fee structure etc what is the general process they submit let's say it's an 80,000 word manuscript which is kind of standard um, mm-hmm. they submit it to you and then and then how does it the process work from there so the process it depends on what we've agreed on uh, as well as what and again some of that agreement is to is also say and I'll just say me just you know from my positions as an editor if this was my project is would also be usually I'm pretty clear with my recommendations if I think that there's a chance that oh that this might need more than one pass because there are some obvious like larger structural issues so I don't want to get into the smaller structural issues until we fix the larger ones then maybe we'll agree that there's going to be multiple passes as, as part of that in which case then you know there'll be a schedule there will always be you know well at any time you're going into that there's um, an agreement that most editors and myself included uh, will have authors sign for a larger project and in it it'll outline any any kind of um, you know the fee schedule schedule, you know, the the actual like work schedule, all that kind of stuff gets laid out in there. So, you know, the process itself. So usually I'll be really clear about, say, what my deadline is uh, and about how much, how long I have to work on things. Uh, I'm also someone who likes to communicate a lot too. So I usually will reach out and just give a a bit of an idea of like, okay, so here I've started or like I've noticed these things about more to come, that kind of thing. When I'm done with the, I'm actually doing the edit, I always write up some kind of editorial letter as well, just so that it basically summarizes, say, the changes I, I've found and things like that. It's also where if I'm doing manuscript evaluations, I always do a, a nice detailed editorial letter, which is also another thing uh, that I haven't brought up yet. But uh, they're a great step, if especially for authors who are completely sure that maybe the book is where it needs to be to really get the value they want from a developmental edit. Doing something like a manuscript evaluation is a great middle ground because it's far cheaper and you still get, so you get kind of the really kind of big picture, more of a broad kind of look at things, right? But it's still a great way to have someone come in with their, with, you know, really good experience and be like, okay, this is what's working. This isn't what's working. 
So your next revision kind of, these are the areas to focus on. And that's really what kind of the evaluation is for. Developmental editing is you know, a lot more hands-on, right? You're looking, okay. So these are kind of these issues, but then you're pointing out and working really specifically in different areas of the manuscript to really kind of dig into it. But I have seen manuscripts where I've looked at them and I'm like, hmm, or, or you know, as part of that kind of evaluating with, with the estimates and things like that and been like, okay, well, you might want to consider this instead because I, you know, I'm not sure if they'll, they quite get the value of the developmental edit yet, but we could, you know, so yeah, just have that middle ground of, of kind of just trying to do what's best for the author while also, you know, making sure that the project gets the support it needs. So it's, it's just lots of, it's always middle ground and, and negotiating and, and just, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's very kind of author focused. Probably again, just because I, between it just being me and between being an acquisitions editor, you always want to kind of build that relationship with the the author as well, so that they have confidence in in what you're both in spending the money on you, but also you know um, in feeling the the value that they get from the project. I also often have um, calls or you know video chats, things like that, with authors, especially for larger projects. That way, we can actually talk through some things, which has been really helpful for uh, people I've worked with as well. But it's not something that everyone does, but it is something that that I like to do. Yeah, that leads into something else. So I know a whole bunch of emerging writers who. Actually actually want to work with an editor as they are writing. They want somebody who -hmm. they can bounce ideas off of and do things like plot development and brainstorming with along the way. They don't want to wait until the manuscript is completely done in order to get a manuscript evaluation. So if there's someone who wants to be working with an editor along the way, having perhaps two discussions a month in terms of where the story's going, Mm -hmm. is that something that you would also be um, open to? Absolutely. It's actually, it's something I've done before as well, especially with, um, you know, recently I've I've worked with the Rights Factory and, and that's actually what I did there especially was working with projects from the beginning and, and kind of working with authors as I went through it and having regular calls and looking at, in this case, it was an essay collection. And, you know, so going even like an essay at a time and, you know, having feedback and back and forth with drafts and all kinds of things. I, I love being able to really dig into things and, and help shape things from, from the ground up. And again, with something like that, you just got to kind of negotiate with the editors, right? Be, be clear on, for, for authors, it's important for them to be clear on what, you know, what they're looking for and what they would like to get and then and then you you find a balance with say you know whether it's the money or or the time or or whatever and just in terms of when you look at um, manuscripts whether it's an evaluation or developmental edit what are sort of the three biggest issues that you tend to find in first draft manuscripts is it structural is it that there's too many characters is it that you know the plot doesn't hold together what what are the the commonalities that you find it depends on the genre i'll start there but generally speaking yeah it's usually oftentimes it is larger structural stuff uh it's things that you know as something that i always say to authors too is that there's it's always often a problem of underwriting generally which is usually when you know, there's more in the author's head than what's on the page, right? Because if it's your own work, right, you're, you're not reading it in a way where you're like, oh, that information is missing because it's it's in your head. So you're automatically filling in the details. So that could, especially if it's something that's more psychotic, maybe like fantasy, sci-fi, alternate reality, you know, speculative fiction, anything like that, where you have to do more major w- world building. 
I often see weakness there, but you know, and, and there could be, but it could even be for like a personal essay collection, right? What holds the essays together? And that goes for short story collections as well, which I've also worked on, you know, is, is it gets that larger picture of, okay, why are these together? Why should someone, why would they want to read this? Why should they read this? And just really kind of finding those overarching themes and, and plots and things that hold it all together. Characterization can be a tricky one as well, again, even with the underwriting, but sometimes you have characters where you're just like, I I don't mean for this character to not be likable, but I don't know how to fix this, right? Maybe you actually want your character to be likable, but they're actually really irritating or they're kind of wooden or they're actually overshadowed by the supporting characters because they just appear more interesting because you're in that character's head and it's just not interesting in the same way. Like it's, there, there are so many issues that kind of come out. Very rarely are the issues say about the writing itself because to me, that's just something you can kind of fix later to a degree. It's usually the fleshing out or it's actually can also be about a lack of planning. Outlines are so important and it's not something that all writers like to use or agree with the process, but it is uh, very important. Some of the strongest books are the ones that have been really planned out. Yeah. And, you know, speaking as someone who's a, a penser, I can attest to the fact that since I don't plot books out, I'm the one who has to rewrite them a million times <laughs> to keep the whole plot together and keep everything moving along and bringing everything together. So so uh, definitely that is something that it really helps in the writing process if you do it. And something else that you've just said is this is the feedback that I myself get from publishers when I'm out on submission. And it's something that many of my writer friends hear as well is I just didn't connect with the character or I just didn't connect with the voice. And voice is so integral to story. Is that something you could just expand on a bit for, for the mm -hmm. listeners? Like what is voice and how do you help them work on that? Absolutely. So really kind of we talking about the voice it's, it's really there's a little bit of a combo happening there so you, on the one hand you kind of have the authorial voice so the voice of the author which and then there's also the voice of the main character and that can be a little more prominent, say, if it's first person. If it's third person, it's a little more distant, so it's not necessarily as clear. But then sometimes they also kind of can compete a bit, or you, you can kind of feel that maybe they're, or the author is trying to make this character work, so then those characters become kind of awkward. Like, it's you can see the play. Again, this is, you know, not something that an average re reader would be able to tell. This is something that, you know, an experienced editor can look at and be like, okay, this is what's going on with this one. This character is acting younger than her actual age and it's it's not appealing or it's confusing or it makes the book feel like it should be young adult when it's actually an adult book. I've worked on you know books where that's happened where it becomes suddenly unclear what age group it should be for because you can have younger characters like teenagers as say the protagonist in adult books but it that's always a little trickier to do because you have to make sure that the the narrative voice which is right again could be the, the more the character it could be more the author like that needs to still have a maturity to it which sometimes can be lost you know so of course as an editor when I'm going in and I'm looking at something like this that's usually something I, I'm unpacking even like as I'm reading through the manuscript okay so when does the main character seem actually like appealing or you know when when do I connect with them? When don't I connect with them? Which scenarios are, are that's happening versus the other? And you, you start seeing the patterns and you're like, okay, well, I really don't like this character when she, I'll just say she, she's interacting with this other character. But then when she's interacting with her best friend, she's all of a sudden really engaging. But then 
her best friend doesn't come across very often. So most of the book, she's just this horrible person. Like you just, you know, she's not meant to be. That's the, that's the thing there. So usually for me, it's also sometimes all it really takes is just for me to be like, look, this is what's happening. How would you like to fix this? And then I work with an author just to kind of help brainstorm how to kind of fix those characters and fix that voice as a result. You know, other times, you know, I might have to go a little more in depth and and really kind of pinpoint certain scenes if they're what kind of turn a character. Because what you can have happen is have a character who is really likable up until a certain scene and then it completely destroys their character and then you hate them for the rest of the book. You can have moments like that where it's because it's, it's just something so inconsistent or just not something you'd ever want to have in a book. And you just, you need someone to be able to be like okay this has to be removed and to remove this you have to say fix these other five scenes or or something like that as well so again it's just it's just having someone in there with the experience and the knowledge to be able to just kind of pinpoint and kind of you know unknot all of these these things really getting down to the source of the issue because I've had that with authors where they're just like oh that's what was wrong like they thought it was or something else and a big frustration for authors is you know the longer we spend on a project whether it's a year or two years, we become so immersed in it that there is zero objectivity. Trying to step away from it and see it clearly becomes pretty much impossible. And that is when somebody like you can be so incredibly helpful in giving us a bit of that objectivity and a bit of distance from our own work. Now, Mm -hmm. in terms of costing, so if, let's say, you've got a manuscript that's about 80,000 words, it's as polished as the writer themselves can make it. They have writing groups. They have people they've shown it to. It's not just a first draft. They've redrafted it multiple times based on feedback that they've gotten from people. More or less, if you can give us like a range estimate of what a manuscript evaluation would cost them and what a developmental edit would cost them. Because I think it's helpful to writers to be able to budget and to know, okay, this is more or less what what it's going to cost me as I go into it. And I know you said there's a range of factors that could change that but just mm-hmm. just a general idea i will i'll give a range but this definitely isn't you know something to, to hold editors to because every editor does have their own their own range and their own costs and things like that but generally speaking manuscript evaluations if on who's doing it can run anywhere from like even it could even be like 700 1500 i, I think some people might do more to 2000 my manuscript evaluation costs um below a thousand dollars personally uh just i feel like just with the time that gets put in that that's fair so usually mine i, I would say even for say eighty thousand is probably maybe in the might be around seven hundred dollars um i usually do i have you know, every editor has their own kind of calculations and, and references and stuff for those kinds of projects. Now, for developmental editing, that one uh, definitely can vary based on how much work a manuscript needs. If it doesn't need tons, and say, again, sticking around the 80,000 word mark, then it maybe could be as low as, like, say, 1,500 to 2,000. Uh, I would say an more average developmental edit might be more in the $2,000 to $3,000 range. I realize that's a huge range, but again, every editor has their own way of estimating. Uh, and how, and that can also factor in anything like how much time an editor has to, again, how much work a project needs or how fast an author wants something done. Like there are a number of factors that, that go into those calculations. But that's again, where I would definitely recommend for authors is to have an idea of a budget, whether they share it with the editor or not, but have an idea of how much you're willing or how much you're, I shouldn't say willing, but how much you're able to spend 
on editing because that will determine, say, even who you work with because certain editors, you know, will price higher than others depending upon experience and things like that. And it can also depend on, you know, how much work gets done. But again, manuscript evaluations are a great middle ground. If you just want to get an idea of even if you're just in, in the right, going in the right direction with your novel, right? If there's really something there that's publishable, that's a great way to find out. Wonderful. Well, that's incredibly helpful, Rachel. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.